American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Berliner. Ich bin ein have a Berliner right. down my pants. That's what I call my penis. It's a Berliner. <laughs> Come on, Welcome back. Yeah. <clears throat> Episode 111, Ray. Triple yeah. ones. I don't know how many episodes we've done on uh, Vietnam uh, at this juncture. It's yeah. a lot. Well, considering lot. The, the average American probably doesn't know hardly anything about it, and probably other countries as well, uh, the more we do, the better. Because I'm learning a lot. I'm, I'm enjoying discovering this, this period in history. I assume other people. Me are too. too. I, yeah, I knew fucking nothing about this, so <laughs> right. it's um, been a eye-opener. real eye opener right. for me. And I got to tell you, the more I know I've said this before, but the more I study this, the more I'm a huge fan of Ho Chi Minh. Yeah, like oh my god. Yeah, Ho Chi Minh was the man. Ho Chi Man. What he should have been called. <laughs> Just Ho the man. <laughs> Coffee mug. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Ho the man. Now. Um, in our last episode, uh, Ray, yeah. I don't know if you remember, but we sort of talked about sort of the socialist government under Leon Bloom coming into Paris, uh, but it's kind of just a, a, a it's, it's like a, a stand-in. It's right. a lame duck right. government. It's only there for a few weeks. Yeah. Really can't do anything, even if it wanted to. Um, and Santony, Jean Santony, Ho's old friend, uh, is in. He's the new governor of Indochina. Um, but uh, you know, this this last half-hearted attempts between the French and uh, Ho to strike some sort of accommodation, but it's just not happening. Meanwhile, Ho and Zap and uh, the other guy mm. uh, who I mentioned, whose name I can't recall. Uh, let me go back to my notes. Uh, uh, Van Tien Dong mm-hmm. uh, have been building up not just the Vietnamese People's Army, which is 60,000, 70,000 strong, but the local militia in the villages and the guerrilla units around the country, which is almost a million strong. Right. and that- Combat villages. Yeah. And not only that, they're 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 building the uh, structure for for a future military that is obviously going to be a lot uh, larger in the future. And because tension is building up on both sides, and like we said, both sides pretty much know what's coming unless there's a miracle, which there isn't. Um, the local government officials in Hanoi are quietly, secretly, you know, getting out of town um, because no one because when you have this build up and you have this tension, you don't know what's going to set it off. Is it going to be something big? It could be anything little. No one knows exa- exactly when it's going to start, but they all know it's going to start. So they start getting out of town so they can be in positions to command troops or whatever their responsibility is once war comes. Now, after the Haiphong incident, this is where the French intercepted the Chinese junk mm-hmm. carrying gasoline in the port city of Haiphong, and, and it sort of turned into a major conflict in that area. Uh, Hundreds of people dead, uh, thousands injured. Uh, The French strafed civilians trying to escape, bombed the Vietnamese and Chinese quarters of the city. Mm -hmm. Ho started preparing Hanoi for an attack. Now, the government officers, as you said, were sort of secretly moved outside of the city, but they were also erecting barricades around Mm. the city to stop French troops from getting in. Now, the French troops that were around Hanoi also started strengthening their own defences. Everyone is basically digging in, getting ready for this to break out. On December 6th, again, 1946, Mm -hmm. Ho made a public speech basically appealing to the French to withdraw their troops. They, of course, ignored him. In an interview with a French journalist the next day, Ho said that he still hoped They could avoid a war and the terrible sufferings it would bring on both countries. But, he said, if war is imposed upon us, we will fight rather than renounce our liberties. I mean, he's putting it out there. He's saying, look, we know we're going to lose a lot of people, but we... You know, we've drawn a line in the sand. This is it. But again, the French being arrogant, I guess, any other European power doesn't really take that into consideration, even though you you can't say that they haven't been warned. And as I said in the last couple of episodes, I think to fully appreciate where the French are at at this juncture, they were greatly embarrassed 
by what happened in World War Two. Mm-hmm. There, you know, they, they, the, how long did it take the Nazis to take control of France? It was like six a weeks. Week. Six weeks for the no, six weeks for the entire battle between Germany and France. It was over. Might as well have been a week. Exactly. Hitler walked in, gave them a hard I'll take stare, that. and they went, "Oh fuck! All right, I believe. All right, I shit to my pants." Yeah. <laughs> Hitler walked in and said, Eiffel Tower, I'm taking that. Napoleon's tomb, I'm taking that. Um, he just went in. So, yeah. you know, they were greatly embarrassed. Right. And then, you know, the Vichy uh, sort of did a deal with the Nazis. And, oh, yeah, come on in. It is, uh, the water is very nice. Uh, can Take I lick wife, your please. bottle? Yeah, yeah. Let me lick your bottle, your Nazi bottle. It is very clean and blonde. Um, do you bleach it? No, it's Aryan bottles are all blonde. We know this. <laughs> So that's why you are superior race. Your buttholes are so the cleaner the butthole. The, never mind. I can't believe I just said that. Anyway, the master butthole <laughs> the master race. Butthole. Um, very embarrassing to the French, and you know De Gaulle. Uh, you know De Gaulle effectively runs France now, whether he's the president or not. Uh, you know they're determined to restore French pride, and the last thing that they're going to do is give in to a bunch of slanty-eyed, brown-skinned people. Right. Just not going to happen. Yeah. No fucking way are they going to give in to these guys, these gooks, as Americans referred to them. Now, um, I was yeah. I was just going to say real quick. Now, General Valouy who wants war as much as uh, D'Argelou, has, is, is pretty much determined that Ho is not going to remove his quote-unquote radicals from his government. And I guess for him, that is his um, reason for, uh, for, for going even further with uh, building up for war. Because, look, I gave this guy an ultimatum. I told him what to do. He didn't do it. Obviously, he's defying France, and that, that, can't, um, that can't possibly happen. So General Valouy asked Paris for permission to take action as soon as the reinforcements arrive. He says... And we're already in December. He says, "Look, if we wait until past the, if we wait until the end of the year, it might then be too late. It could be disastrous for France. We have to strike now, and we have to strike strike hard as soon as those reinforcements gets here." He is ready to go. So he was asking Paris for permission, but Leon Bloom is reluctant. And on December 12th, he actually announced his intention to grant Vietnam independence. Wow. Not, not immediately. Okay. But in the fullness of that time. That was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All things being equal in the. No, no, he was said, no, listen. Yeah. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. That's the right thing to do. As I said in the last episode, a week before he took government, he had written an article yeah. in Le Populaire saying, you know, that's the only right thing to do. We have to grant them full independence. Yeah. But three days later, Ho gave Sontany a message to get to Bloom with suggestions about how to move forwards. He cut and pasted his old email. <laughs> Suggestion one. Give us our independence. Right. Suggestion two. See suggestion one. <laughs> Sontany sent it to Saigon and asked them to transmit it to Paris. But uh, as we'll see, it didn't get there. Ooh. Now, the Viet Minh, I think, were sceptical that Bloom would be able to do anything at this yeah. juncture to avoid war. They're like, look, that's nice and everything, but... Uh, words. It's a bit late. Yeah, now. words, words, yeah. words. Yeah. Words yeah. don't come easy to me. What? How can I find the way to make you stay because words, words don't come easy? Oh, that's, that's sweet. No, but, but the quote-unquote radical Vo Yin Gap said um, he couldn't believe Bloom. And like you said, too little, too late, that Bloom was probably nothing more than a tool of the United States and French businesses. So again, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for putting that out there, but it's not changing anything. We're already on a course for war. Yeah. Yap actually said that in his opinion, Bloom was a tool of the United States and of French business interests. Mm-hmm. And he might have had a point because in this new cabinet that Bloom put together, there was zero French communists. Ah. Now, you said before that, uh, was it maybe in the last episode, you said something about, uh, you know, it was okay to have socialists running France, mm-hmm. but not 
communists running Vietnam. I think there's a big difference um, in the minds of the Americans and certainly the British between socialists and communists at Mm -hmm. this stage. Remember, at this point, England has a socialist government as well. Yeah, they're socialist light, um, as, as were these guys. So... The French socialists were socialist light. They're gotcha. not advocating redistribution of wealth in a classless <laughs> society. Right. They're like, well, maybe we should have welfare. Oh, you know, yeah. uh, may- maybe, maybe we should it. have healthcare. Yeah, maybe uh, people should get paid more. Um, right. You know Maybe. that that kind of stuff, right. okay. um, which I know to Americans sounds like crazy. It's to communism, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now uh, Bloom also reconfirmed Da Daji right. Da Jean Liu as High Commissioner of Indochina, which isn't a good sign because no. he's the guy that's been the fucking cause of a lot of the problems. Now, on the other hand, there was a cabinet meeting called in Paris to discuss this request for reinforcements. Um, and 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 immediate military action, and it didn't reach a decision. Right. So Bidot, the former uh, prime minister of France, actually had to warn Valois, the general on the ground in Indochina, that he shouldn't count on reinforcements and should try to resolve the situation without resorting to violence. Right. But uh, yeah, Valois wasn't really uh, going to have a bar of that. Well, see, this is a, this is uh, something that I fi- find fascinating because we have talked about a lot of history over the years. We've talked about historical forces and movements and governments or whatever. But this is the kind of thing that I like best about history. N- not that I agree with what is about to happen, but this is a case where one man and the right position can all by him or herself determine events. Valois, like D'Argelou, is determined to keep a French presence in Indochina, and he just knows, he's like, like, I'm not going to get these reinforcements, I might get them, but they're in the future, everybody's telling me to stay calm and don't cause any, you know, don't cause any further outbreak of war, but he knows that he needs something, some kind of clash, something to get the Viet Minh to attack him, to attack French forces, to start a war, to make them look like the bad guys. I need a complete and utter break with Hanoi, and that will force Paris into action and into war. So this guy is just looking for something to start this whole thing going, where hopefully the fingers won't be pointed at him, but he is pretty much determined to make war come to Vietnam. He's just looking for the right opportunity. He, by himself and his position, is going to determine everything. Forget Paris. Forget who's ever in the government for the next five minutes. He himself is going to do this. And again, it's just one of those things in history that someone just takes on a role all by themselves and affects the rest of the story. Yeah, he has rolled the dice and he's going to cross the Rubicon. It's not his Rubicon, but he's going to cross it. Hmm. On December 16th, Valois ordered General Moliere, who was in charge of the military in the north, even um, Sontany had come and replaced him as the overall um, governor, yeah. but, uh, yeah, he's still in charge of the military. He So he orders Moliere to destroy the barricades that the Viet Minh had been <laughs> erecting around Hanoi. Yeah. Ooh. So there's now, his first attempt remember, to, to start trouble. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, that's definitely what he's doing. Okay, basically they're marching in to take over Hanoi, and the first step to that is is destroying the barricades. Right. Now, Ho had sent his message to uh, Bloom, Mm -hmm. but it arrived in Saigon. Valois appended his own commentary, which wasn't very supportive. (laughs) Right. But the cable didn't arrive until Paris until the 19th of December. Right. By which it was way too late because mm-hmm. on December 17, French armoured cars started demolishing barricades in Hanoi. Right. With French soldiers lining the streets of Hanoi to prevent anyone trying to stop the armoured cars from doing it. And the Viet Minh didn't react. Right. <laughs> they were supposed to get pissed off and attack to give the French excuse. But again, I think Ho is wisely like, no, 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 not yet. And we're not really ready. Not yet. So again, the French second attempt to piss off the Viet Minh does not work. 
The next day, the French issued an ultimatum that no further obstructions should be erected. They also declared that as of the 20th, French military units would take control of the city of Hanoi. In response to that, the Viet Minh started blocking the routes into the city. (laughs) So the next day, the French issued another ultimatum that the Viet Minh had to disband all of its militia units and hand over security to the French. Basically, lay down your weapons and surrender. Now, Valois declared, if those gooks want to fight, they'll get it. Damn. Now, the term gook, Ray, do you Mm. know where it comes from? No, please tell me. Well, nobody's really sure. Mm. Um, I looked into it. Because you know I love a good uh, offensive term. Right. I love knowing my yes, offensive you do. terminology, where they come from. Um, <laughs> apparently, uh, people assume that it's American in origin, but right. we don't really know the, the history exactly. The, a slang dictionary published in 1893 defines gook as a low prostitute, a low-class prostitute. Mm. Now, H.L. Mencken said that U.S. Marines who were in Nicaragua, uh, occupying Nicaragua in 1912, were calling the natives their gooks. Right. And that they had previously called the Filipinos gooks. Because normally, you know, I think after Vietnam, we associate the offensive term gook as meaning Asian people. But they were even using it for the Nicaraguans. Now, it might have come from Gugu, which was uh, a, a mocking uh, sort of imitation of Filipino speech. You know the word barbarians. We talked about this on our old Caesar show. Um, barbarians is what the Greeks referred to people who spoke foreign <laughs> languages because they couldn't right. understand them. It sounded like they're going ba, 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 whatever. Right. So they were barbarians, barbarians. They just go ba, 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 ba. Well, you know, so the Americans thought the the Filipinos were just like goo 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 goo, so they called them goo goos. Right. So gook may have come out of that a combination of that and these sort of low prostitutes, uh, low end hookers as gooks, um, similar to how spick, according to H. L. Mencken, the word spick mm-hmm. for uh, His- Latinos, right. Hispanics. Uh-huh came from the Hispanics' attempts to say that they did not speak English. Uh, uh, I, I know speak. I know speak. Right. I know speak English. No speak. So they got called spicks. Jeez. No speak English. White people, right? come on. Anyway, <laughs> just stop it already. And, of course, famously, John McCain, John McCain, uh, during his 2000 uh, presidential campaign, said, I hate the gooks, I will hate them as long as I live. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I remember that. Well, for him it's personal, um, I guess. Not that it justifies it, yeah. but, ex- but it explains mm. it, I guess. Yeah, how dare they put him in prison for invading <laughs> their country. <laughs> personal. <Sure. laughs> he hates them because they put him in prison for invading their country. Uh, yeah, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. Is there another way of no, looking at it? No. <laughs> no. No. Fuck John McCain, <laughs> as I said on the day he died. Um, and started to be glorified by the American media. We should do a show on John McCain like I did on Bush when he died. Right. Oh, on December 18, while this is going on, Ho issued orders to launch an attack on the French installations the next day. So what they've done is they've done nothing for a couple of days. They've let the French destroy their barricades, Mm -hmm. issue all these ultimatums, lay down your weapons. Right. They've gone, okay, okay. It's time. All right. Sure. 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 But. And got ready. Yeah. Got ready for an attack. So even though Ho delivers this message, yeah, we need to prepare to, uh, to hit these guys. The same day he sends another message to Prime Minister Bloom. This time he sends it directly to Paris. And again, so he sends another message, look, I got some ideas about how to calm this thing down. He also sends a letter to Santini, and he basically says, look, the situation has become more tense these last few days. This is very regrettable. Pending the decision from Paris, I hope that you, 
together with Mr. Guillaume, will find a solution in order to improve the present atmosphere. So this guy on the eve of battle, and he has issued his own orders, is still trying to start a dialogue, diffuse the situation, and stop the bloodshed. So again, he, he, should, he doesn't get credit for that, but he absolutely should. Indeed. Now, Guillaume is his culture minister, Huang Min Guillaume. Right. He gave the letter to Guillaume to take it to Sontany, but Sontany refused to meet with Guillaume. He said he would meet with him the following morning. God. Um, now, he was delaying it because he knew that the French were about to take possession of Hanoi. Because he had been told now, by Valouis. So he had been forewarned. And these guys are in it together completely. Look, we are going to have our war. Yeah, well, Sontany's the governor, man. Right. So yes, he's. I mean, just they're, they're, yeah, they've got the same plan here. They're on the same page. Right now, uh, he had already Sontany had already written his own letter to Ho, complaining about what he called Vietnamese provocations, which led to the death of some French civilians, and demanding that the perpetrators be immediately punished. Yeah. Now, when Ho heard that Sontany had refused to meet with Guillaume, he called a party meeting. And they agreed that it was necessary to mobilize the entire country Mm -hmm. to wage a war of resistance against the French and that the first attack would happen at 8 p.m. on the next day. So, yeah, so it's um, it's, it's pretty much time to to get this going. So um, Chirong Chin would write a, a draft, a declaration calling for war. Giap would give the order to start fighting, and then both of them together with Ho looked over an appeal that he wrote that afternoon. They made a couple of changes, and like you said, the attack was set for 8 p.m. that night. Um, the meeting ended, and they had been preparing for this, even though he's, he's preaching peace up and down uh, for the last couple of years. They have been preparing for this. It's finally come, and everyone knows what they're supposed to do. So the Viet, Viet Minh, even though they have very primitive weapons, have thought this all, all out, and they they know exactly what they're going to do. So when the when the green light is given, everybody gets into positions. Now, 8 p.m. the following evening, Sontany, Jean Sontany, the governor of Indochina, was leaving his office for the day when he was warned that French intelligence uh, knew that the Vietnamese were planning an attack. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, apparently it's apparently it is not tonight. I am going home. And this is December 19th. Just as he yeah. Just as he jumped in his car at 8 p.m., he heard an explosion and the streets immediately went dark. Ooh. So he hurried to his home and when he got there there was an armored car waiting for him that General Moliere had sent to transport him to the citadel where they ah, had their war room. Right. On his way the armoured car hit a mine and Sontany was badly wounded. For the next few hours, this man who had accompanied Ho on his tour of the French seaside six months earlier, who had gone fishing with him, taken him to lunch at his sister's house, (laughs) lay bleeding and wounded on the street, surrounded by dead and wounded comrades. Is that not a the metaphor French, for the war that's about to come? Sorry. It is. Yeah, good one. <laughs> the, the Vietnamese had opened their campaign with a surprise attack on a power station. Mm-hmm. Then their militia units had launched assaults on French French installations across the city. Now, a lot of French troops were returning to their barracks at the time. They'd had a special movie screening uh, to celebrate what an easy victory they had had in taking control of Hanoi. Hey, let's go to the movies. Well, that was done. The mission accomplished banner was up. What's next? Oh, well, fuck. Those gooks lay down pretty... Those gooks lay down as quickly as we did in the beginning of World War II. I mean, uh, obviously, we taught them something. How to right, how to surrender quickly? Yeah, yeah, up- yeah, yeah. Not not for nothing, colonialism. I got to tell you. <laughs> meanwhile, we spread our values. Shouldn't be laughing. Yeah. No, sorry. Meanwhile, um, Viet Viet Minh terrorist squads were roaming through the European section of Hanoi, attacking civilians. 
Yeah. Now, Giap had three divisions of regular forces waiting in reserve at a race course just southwest of the city, but he wasn't deploying those just yet. They were his reserve. Right. Now, the French, of course, were taken by surprise at the scale of the attacks. They thought the Vietnamese had just given in when they didn't do anything for the first couple of days. Mm-hmm. But by late evening, the French had began to reestablish control over certain parts of Hanoi. They attacked the Northern, Pal- uh, Northern Palace, but Ho was barely able to escape. He nearly got killed, oh but he managed God. to get out. Don't know why he was still there. Personally, I yeah. would have got the fuck out of Dodge <laughs> a lot earlier. But I would have given the order the and first, run. Yeah. The first Indochina war had well and truly begun. Yeah. Now, if you remember a couple of episodes ago when Ho gave us the tiger and elephant story, he was as good as his word. Why the, the French spent the next few days securing major industrial centers uh, in, the, in northern and central Vietnam. Hona's colleagues had went to their mountain base at Trantau that they had already worked on, dusted off from uh, back in the Revolution. And so now they've set up their, their headquarters. And it's on December 22nd, three days into the war, that the Vietnamese government issues a statement. And I, and I love communists. They, they think everything out. They have meetings and they talk it to death, but they pretty much laid it out. Now, was Ho Chi Minh sincere in trying to avoid conflict with the French or had he simply been trying to buy time? As a disciple of Sun Tzu, the great Chinese military strategist, he knew that the best kind of victory was the kind of victory that you won without having to use military force. Mm. But by December 19th, 1946, he knew he'd run out of time. And he and his leadership team, Giap, etc., realised that the future of the Vietnamese people was going to be fought and won on the battlefield. Now, the uh, story of the tiger and the elephant that he told a journalist from the New York Times, we mentioned a few episodes ago, mm-hmm. that the tiger would come out at night and tear the elephant to pieces. Well, Ho wasn't fucking around when he told that story. <laughs> now, as the, as the French were mopping up around Hanoi, Ho and his team moved to their old mountain base at Tan Trao, a couple of hundred kilometres north of Hanoi, where they knew the French couldn't get to them. And Giap understood that they weren't strong enough to, to take on the French directly. Not yet. They needed to avoid an open, uh, large-scale kind of engagement. And they needed to take time and build up their forces. So right. they made a public statement that the conflict would take place in three stages. Step mm-hmm. one, cut a hole in a box. <laughs> Step two... Put your junk in the box. <laughs> Step three, make, an, <laughs> make her open the box. And that's the way you do it. <laughs> Sorry. Wrong three stages. I was thinking of no. Vegas. No, they're three stages. They're three stages were actually borrowed from Mao Zedong. Now, by the way, Zedong, the dick. I mean... How do you get away with really going around calling yourself <laughs> Mal the Big Dick? I mean, you can. Yeah. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But you might have to but, back it up. But you, you got to back it up. You got to follow yeah. through. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Like, people are like, yo, it's Big Dick. And that is actually, quite honestly, no joking, that's how my son Taylor starts every phone call with me. He goes, hey, what? He goes, hey what's up, Big Dick? And I'm not even joking. Is it a compliment? And I'm like, or a. Well, that's now his theory is if you start conversations with people like that, men in particular, it's maybe slightly awkward if you start a conversation with a woman like that. Sure. But he said, well, men, men, nobody objects to be calling big dick. (laughs) So they immediately like you. They're immediately in a good mood. They're like, all right, thanks very much. That's true. That's his. Yeah. That's his theory. It's my new title. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Mao's original name was just Mao Smith. No, um, did not know. Yeah, it's just Mouse, yeah, Mouse Smith. A lot of Smiths in China. Don't know if you know that. And um, people started calling him Big Dick when he started, you know, after the, the long march, he started to take control of the Red Army. They're like, hey, you're the Big Dick. And he goes, well, I guess I'll just call myself Mao Big Dick. Like people call you Ray Bubble Boy. Anyway, that is how Mao got the name Mao Zedong. <laughs> That's true. Look it up. 
That's history, okay. people. That's we do research. That's, that's history. Uh, anyway, back to the three stages that they got from uh, yeah. Mao Zedong, Mao the big dick. Um, yeah. Gyap and, and Trong Chin uh, concocted this, but they got it basically from Mao. So the first stage is remain in defense, build up their strength, hide in the mountains. Right. Second stage is when they had kind of parity with mm-hmm. the French, when their forces were roughly equal, they would come out of their hidden mountain bases with guerrilla attacks, sudden guerrilla attacks on uh, exposed French right. installations. Third stage would be a grand offensive. When they thought they had the French on the run, grand offensive come out and would drive their enemy into the sea. Now, what uh, I love about this is they, they said this publicly at the end of 1946. <laughs> Look, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Ballsy. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, it reminds me of Richard III in Shakespeare's play. He says, look, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going I'm to convince her to, to fall in love with me and then I'm going to mm-hmm. have her killed. Watch, it's going to be fascinating. You're going <laughs> to love it. That's basically what they said. And <laughs> Follow me. So yeah. not only the French but the Americans uh, obviously missed the fucking memo because yeah. uh, the Viet Minh were very that. clear about what their strategy was going to be. <laughs> and more than Mao, though, Trong Chin stressed the importance of international powers in all of this. In this case, obviously, the United States, the Soviet Union and China to the success of the Mm -hmm. uh, insurgency. And he also stressed that French public opinion was going to play a decisive role. You know, he would say, look, over time, the French are going to lose morale. Uh, There will be increased public opposition to fighting and that's going to impact on the French war effort, and we will win. Ultimately, we will be victorious. And, of course, he was right. That that worked with the French, and eventually it worked against the Americans as well. Over the course of the next uh, mm-hmm. 30 years, that strategy was deployed incredibly effectively by Ho Chi Minh and Giap and Trong Chin, and you really, really need to hand it to them. Yeah. They, they they worked it. So they got their three part plan, but the uh, but the rebels cannot abandon Hanoi completely. So militia units do stay inside the city. Uh, they again, like in Haiphong, they stay in the Chinese sector, home of about thirty thousand people. So that so they're hiding in there now. General Valui wants to air bomb that um, that part of town to kill all these people, almost like the Battle of Guernica during the Spanish Civil War or the London Blitz. Like, oh, that's where they're at? Well, let's just drop a bunch of bombs on them. But uh, fortunately, well, I don't know if this is fortunate or not, but General Molier says, no, no, that's not the way to go. Instead, we should do a street-by-street advance. That way, when we do win, there won't be a ton of physical destruction. Again, because we are here to make a bunch of money, so it won't really do us any good to destroy something that we're trying to keep. So General Molier gets his way, and he does start a house-by-house or street-by-street advance through that section of town. But as you can imagine, this is going to cause a lot of French casualties. So even as they withdrew, the Vietnamese uh, sent the French a message that their struggle would be long and bitter, like D'Angelo's penis. As the government (laughs) officials abandoned Hanoi for the mountains, the militia units uh, remained and dug in along the streets of the Chinese sector. Uh, wow. You know, and they they uh, wrote uh, on the walls, on the bricks of the walls in charcoal, we shall return. And God. then they went up into the mountains. Yeah, mid, mid-January. I'll be back, 19- basically. <laughs> Exactly. Mid-January 1947, the French are able to push them out eventually, but they do let them know that they're coming back. And of course, by this time, the French have already suffered some serious casualties, not as much as the Viet Minh. But the point is, they are being tough, they're being courageous, and they're fighting when they can. And they are already delivering casualties to the French for their pains. The French were shocked. They were like, we thought we taught them that the way you, you, know, you lie down. <laughs> You give up you in the first like week. This, uh, close your eyes. Who is in charge of teaching yeah. them how to fight the war? This is intolerable. A dream of bread. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. <laughs> um, 
The U.S. consul uh, in Indochina, O'Sullivan, reported back to Washington that the Vietnamese had fought with unforeseen courage and stubbornness, much like the Japanese in the Pacific War and much unlike the French in World War II. Now, (laughs) I'd be like, unforeseen courage. You have not been paying attention, my friend. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Unforeseen, really, really. But this is my point. Like, and, yeah. and I'm not. I'm not trying to be um, facetious. But uh, you know, I think the uh, view that yeah. white people had about Asians right. uh, at that yeah. time was still very racist. This was the same problem yeah. that the Americans had with the Japanese, as we know, all the way through World War Two. This very racist view of uh, you know P- Asian people, and um, the French certainly were racist. The Americans were racist, uh, and you know they they just didn't think that these Vietnamese yeah. had it in them, you know, yeah, to stand well, up it- to the Europeans. So not only are they being tough, but the French are also going to be surprised when the Viet Minh start fighting um, wisely. So, so, um, so uh, the capital is taken. They've pushed these guys out. But as the uh, French forces start to go outside the city, they're going to find that the Viet Minh have been using um, scorched earth policy uh, tactics. So as the French go out further and further, there's nothing, there's no resources for them to grab from locals. Everything's being burned. Everything's being carted away. So the further the French go from the cities, the harder time that they're having um, staying supplied because they can't steal from anybody. It's all been ruined or carted away. So again, the Viet Minh have have thought this thing through. They have practiced it, or they have they planned it all out, and now they're using it. And it's again, and it shouldn't be, but it is taking the French by surprise. You know, I think the thing about a scorched earth policy too is the Vietnamese are used to being cold and hungry. The French are not. Yeah. So <laughs> it's no big deal to them. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah, they're like, we, we survive on <laughs> half a cup of rice anyway. So, my whole life. <laughs> good yeah. luck. Yeah. Um, yeah. Other parts of the country, the Viet Minh militia waged delaying actions in urban areas while the main force disappeared into the mountains. But Ho, still, still <laughs> at this point, he's trying to bring about a peaceful settlement. Wow. On the very day that the hostilities broke out, Pamphlets appeared on the streets of Hanoi in, um, in French informing the people of France that Ho's government wanted to live peacefully within the French Union and blaming the outbreak of war on reactionary colonialists who dishonour the name of France wow. and who seek to separate us in provoking war. Yeah. We just want independence and peace can be immediately restored if the French give us what we want, which is independence. And he had radio broadcasts going out saying the same thing, basically trying to get the French people in Indochina Ah, to put pressure on the government and the military. He wrote to the foreign minister, Moutet, the guy he signed the uh, modus vivendi with, who I guess is still the foreign minister at the new government, and General Leclerc. They were both on their way to Indochina on a fact-finding mission for the French government. Uh, he wrote to them proposing that we all they all sit down at the table. Uh, in Paris. Have a ceasefire. Sit down yeah, in go, Paris. Yeah. Come on. I'll go back to Paris. <laughs> Again, we'll sit down. But the right. French told him to go sit on a breadstick. Right. <laughs> a stale one at that, yeah. But see, that's the thing. At this point, Paris is not quite so keen on peace, Bloom gave a speech on the 23rd to the National Assembly, said, look, we have to respond to this violence. And I want the French residents in Indochina to know that they can count on the resolution of the government. So in some ways, Ho's, it's even harder for him now because now that there is actual fighting and even more French pride is involved, they have to have some kind of response to that. So he can keep sending out these peace feelers, but it's going to be even harder for Paris with their pride to listen to him. Yeah, I mean, uh, they they were still suffering from the embarrassment of giving in quickly to the Germans. If yeah. they give in quickly oh, to the Vietnamese... No, no, they can't do that. Yeah, no. They can't do that. No, yeah. he can't do that. Um, Bloom said in this uh, speech, 
We have been faced with the task of responding to violence. I declare that those who are fighting there, the French residents living in Indochina, and that friendly peoples can count without reserve on the vigilance and the resolution of the government. Yeah. Now, you know, he's saying we're responding to violence. He's not acknowledging that they started the violence. Right. Or that and people tried to take the ports and take the city by force. Exactly. And that they goaded the Viet Minh into fighting. And that Ho had been, you know, begging them to sit down at the table for, <laughs> right. you know, a year and negotiate a peace. Uh, so it's spin. It's propaganda. Yeah. And, and this is what happens in every war. Like everything you hear from your own government regarding a conflict, you can pretty much assume as a lie yeah. at some level. Absolutely. Always. If history has taught us anything, it's that governments lie, particularly in times of conflict and in times of war. They're always telling you a version of a story that is very, very rarely the full, honest, transparent truth. You should assume you're being lied to. Always. Right. Bloom is going to start a line, uh, I, I guess a, um, a phrase that is going to be picked up on everyone else. And he says, look, I'm all for some kind of settlement, but it's only after order is restored. He didn't say peace. He said order. And I'm assuming by that he means when we win this, when there's French control over the country, we will then be ready to talk to these people. But only after we've per- pretty much got our boot on their throat. Yeah. Listen, here's how it's going to work. Lay down your weapons and then we will talk. Right. Now, obviously, Ho's not going to allow that. Not after everything they've been through to get to this point. And as you keep pointing out, 100 years of French oppression, centuries of Chinese oppression before that, it's not going to happen. They know this is their time, this is their moment, and they're not giving that away for anything. Now, Moutet, the guy who had visited Ho late at night, sorry, the guy who Ho had visited at his house Mm -hmm. late at night in Paris, and they drafted the modus vivendi together, he was described by the French media as a messenger of peace, and he Mm. was sympathetic to the Vietnamese struggle. But once war had broken out, even he couldn't back down, which Valois knew, which was why he had you know, created the conflict in the first place. He knew that once the war Uh. broke out, French pride was going to be on the line and there was no backing down. Uh, Moutet uh, sort of echoed what Bloom had been saying, that basically French control over the region needed to be re-established before there'd be any further negotiations. He said, one cannot commit with impunity such follies as those committed by the Viet Minh. Jeez. And even um, on, Ho is still not finished trying to establish peace. On January 3rd, he sends a letter to Momet uh, saying, look, let's, I'd like to propose a ceasefire and maybe we can get the talks going again. But the French um, colonial authorities seized the letter and sent it back to Ho. So again, we're not even going to talk to you at this point. But Ho is still sending out his email saying, that if anybody will fucking talk to me, I'd like to propose a ceasefire, and I would like to propose a way to get the talks going again. But both sides have already crossed the line. That can now not happen. How the fuck do you send it back to Ho? It was like, care of Ho Chi Minh, some little cave in the mountain somewhere. Right. I'm sure that'll get cave, to him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. the French are good at anything. It's delivering mail. <laughs> now, listen, I want to take note Bread of this propaganda here. Like, Moutet saying yeah. one cannot commit with impunity such follies. I mean, this is classic uh, propaganda strategy. Now, to the French people back home in France, they probably believed the propaganda that the mm-hmm. Vietnamese had delivered a sneaky attack and that the French were right. just defending themselves. That's always how imperialists position their wars. That's how every government in history has justified wars. Oh, well, we were attacked. We're defending ourselves. Now, if you're an American, sit down because you're not going to like this. But think about 9-11 for a second. <laughs> For decades and decades, the United States had been pushing Arab nations to the brink. 
overthrowing their governments, supporting brutal dictatorships, supporting Israel's invasions of Palestine, extracting oil wealth from the nations. And then when someone fights back, all of a sudden, they are the bad Mm. guys. And Americans go along with it because they have no sense of history. Right? When 9-11 happened, my first response was, I mean, I was horrified and, and, you know, I was watching it live on TV, horrified. But at the same, my first response was, well, yeah, man, chickens come home to roost. I mean, what the fuck do you expect? You think you can push these people around forever and it's never going to come back and bite you on the ass? But, but that, that, I mean, I know Bill Maher actually did suggest that and that's why he got taken off the air at the time. But very right. few American uh, commentators, actually very few commentators anywhere, uh, provided that perspective in the media. Well, yeah, this is payback, yeah. right? Th- that's what it is. It's payback. But no, it was they hate us for our freedoms. That was the narrative that was run, not... Well, you know, they got sick of us pushing them around, so they fought back the only way they could, right? Now, we've talked about Pearl Harbor before on the show in the same vein, right? It gets positioned as a sneaky attack by the Japanese. No one talks about, well, you know, you'd been fighting an economic war against them for six months, preventing them from being able to import oil and gas and the other stuff that they needed for their economy. And you were going to prevent them from trying to increase their territory. That's why you, you, you shifted your navy to Pearl Harbor. So, yes, it was a response. It wasn't a provocation. It was a response to what had happened before. Right. And so in 1946, French newspapers didn't have their own correspondence in Indochina. They were relying on the Associated mm. Press and the AFP, the Agency France Presse, for news – and and Daji, the high commissioner, obviously wasn't going to allow any independent journalism. So he had strict control over the AFP. It was basically right. a government propaganda arm. So not surprisingly, the six main Paris daily newspapers had very little in the way of in-depth reporting in November and December of 1946 about what was going on and the precursors to it and basically ah. blamed the Vietnamese for the outbreak of violence. So uh, the French people, all they had to go on was what they were being told by the newspapers and the governments. You, you control the population by controlling what information they have access to. On November 28th, after the French had been uh, bombarding Haiphong and destroyed the, the, the Vietnamese and the Chinese sectors, Le Monde wrote that uh, from the French side, not a single shot had been fired except in defence. After they had been strafing civilians with spitfires and bombed these quarters of the city down to rubble, not a single shot had been fired except in defence. Now, here's something surprising, at least to me. I found American papers at the time actually providing a balanced narrative. Hmm. I went through newspapers.com last night and I was looking for how American newspapers were positioning this. The Austin American Statesman on the 27th of December 1946 reported both the French position that the Viet Minh were to blame and the Viet Minh position that the French were to blame in the same article. Now, the headline was... Indochina chieftain blamed for revolt and the quote from Ho was buried further down in the article, but at least they did report it. They did kind of give them equal equal space, equal inches, but the headline was taking the French view. The Indiana Gazette also had a very nice article by American war correspondent DeWitt McKenzie Ran about the same time, criticising the French for how badly they were handling things in Indochina and how, unlike the French in Burma and uh, sorry, the the British in Burma and India, who were already going through the st- process of uh, granting their colonial right. uh, possessions independence, and what America had, was already doing in the Philippines, 
um, how the French were clinging on and that, you know, DeWitt was writing, look, everyone knows that the era of colonial uh, uh, occupation is over. Mm-hmm. The French... Uh, the French are fighting a losing battle here. Um, now, this guy, DeWitt McKenzie, wow. actually an interesting guy. Um, he was a war correspondent. His columns appeared in 800 newspapers around the world in the middle of the 20th century, read by millions of people. He'd pretty much been at every major uh, military action in the 20th century. He was at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, mm-hmm. uh, along with Ho. Um, he was a really, really interesting guy, and you know, really writing um, the the truth about what was going on in these places. Very, very objective, um, pro peace, uh, anti war, war correspondent. Uh, I always he had a column. I think it was called just McKenzie's column that was uh, right. um, run in all these newspapers. Always he turns up everywhere when I'm researching sort of the Cold War or the early part of the Cold War. Anyway, Moutet made no attempt to contact Ho Chi Minh when he was into China. As you said, Ho tried to send him a letter that didn't get to him. Moutet, on the other hand, who had written the modus vivendi with Ho, made no effort to contact Ho when he was there. Now, General Leclerc, he knows, yes, we have to respond militarily to the surprise attack on us. But in the end, whatever solution comes about has to be political. It can't just be all military. So he's kind of not happy with uh, Mehmet about about ignoring Ho completely. Because, like, we, yeah, we're going to fight and we're going to slap these people down. But there does need to be some kind of dialogue. And uh, on January 9th, he, uh, he, um, General Leclerc writes, there are too many people here who imagine that a bridge between Vietnam Vietnam and France can be built on a mound of cadavers. So I don't really want to give him too much credit because this guy is like, he's one of the major causes of this, but at the same time he does realize there has to be a limit, there has to be an end, because at some point we're going to have to start talking and stop fighting so we can hopefully you know get our colony back, but he does, he does realize the limits of, of the military response. Yeah, in his in his report to the French government, he said, "You cannot subdue a nation of twenty four million people who want independence." <laughs> Duh. Sorry. Sorry. But um, like everybody else in the French government at this point in time, he wants to replace the radical government with one with has more moderate political forces, uh, basically one that can be more easily controlled, I think. And until that could be achieved, France needed to dominate the Mm. battlefield in Vietnam. De Gaulle also announced publicly that France must remain united with the territories which she opened to civilization, lest (laughs) she lose her great power status. Look, uh, we mm. gave them the stinky cheese. You know, they have, they owe us. We gave them the stinky cheese. <laughs> that is the basis of our empire. Now, Leclerc's here. views agreed with Leon Bloom. So uh, Bloom asked him to return to Indochina, replace the uh, Argelo uh, as the, uh, what is he, high commissioner. High commissioner. Um, yeah. They were, you know, Bloom believed that uh, Daji was one of the reasons for the whole fucked up situation, <laughs> as was Leclerc, quite honestly, before him. But right. Daji had just made it worse. But before Leclerc could make a decision, Bloom was out of office and replaced with another socialist, Paul Ramadier. Now, Ramadier preferred to restore order by force, but he wouldn't commit to beefing up the strength of the French force in Indochina. So Leclerc turned down the job on the advice of de Gaulle and instead Ramadier appointed Emile Bolliat who was a relatively unknown politician. So he leaves for Indochina in early March 1947. He's going to be the new high commissioner. 
And that's fine, but there's already drama waiting for him when he gets to Saigon, because Deagelu had already started a movement to completely do an end run around the Viet Minh and ignore them, and he again wants to set up a deal with Bao Dai, the former emperor. Uh, but like you said earlier, this guy has pretty much let himself go. He's given himself to women in gambling, um, but the French are going to still try to work with him. However, they're going to find that because of his debauched ways, and he's the exact opposite of Ho Chi Minh. The people are not going to respond to him or respect to him, but the French still see him as a useful puppet if they could just get him out of the crack houses of uh, Hong Kong. Yeah, Bao Dai is fucking and gambling his way through <laughs> Hong Kong, and quite frankly, who can him. blame him? Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not a bad not a bad pickup line. Hey, I used to be the emperor of Indochina. Uh I might be again one day. You, yeah. You blow me. Um, <laughs> now, yeah, as you say, Ho was extremely popular, um, even though not 100% uh, unified in their support of him, but extremely popular. Bao Dai, on the other hand, had been the puppet emperor of the Japanese, so not yeah. a huge amount of credibility there. And But by now yeah. there are over 1,000 French troops dead or missing oh, already. They're only a couple right. of months into it. And so the French community in Indochina are adamantly opposed to even negotiating with the Viet Minh. They want blood. Yeah. Ho decides to reach out to Bolly, the new high commissioner, and he asked Huang Min Giam, his culture minister, actually I think he was now the foreign minister, he'd taken over from Ho as the foreign yes. minister, to send a message to Bolly proposing a ceasefire and the reopening of negotiations, basically cut and pasted. <laughs> the email for the 400th time. This time it's going to work. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the, I feel it. Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? <laughs> Maybe that's Ho. Oh, my <clears> God. <throat> but Bolly had no incentive but, uh, to negotiate because yeah. he'd been told by his military that they had the situation completely in control. <laughs> oh, we've got them on the run yeah, the- now, sir. <laughs> Yeah, this is like April 23rd. So he's like, okay, okay, I'll talk to you. But because my military says that we're currently winning, I will only talk to you if the Viet Minh forces surrender. Then and only then will I talk to you. Mm. So um, he, Bolly, counted his own sort of set of conditions, complete surrender, and he sent Paul Moose to convey it to Ho. Now, uh, Paul Mousse mm-hmm. was a French uh, scholar, uh, very well right. known as uh, having studied Vietnam, sort of a major academic expert on Vietnam, well known to Ho. Um, he had been you know, backwards and forwards uh, from Vietnam for, for many years. Um, so he sent Mousse to deliver the message. Now, Mousse met with... Huang first, and then Ho on May 12th. Ho listened politely to the demands and Mm -hmm. then said no. (laughs) In the French Union, there is no place for cowards. If I accept these terms, I would be one. Ooh. Do you think his life would have been in risk from his own people if he had accepted the French terms. I mean, I know he's beloved, but there are some people who viscerally hate the French and they're like, we could never accept that. And if you lead us down that path, then maybe you're not our leader. I'm not saying that's why he said no, but I imagine that would would have been a consequence. Yeah. Look, I definitely think that's a possibility, certainly removed from power or maybe executed. But at the end of the day, I don't think he was going to do it for anybody's reasons. He's doing it for himself. He has spent his life fighting for the independence of his country. He is the guy that, after the defeat of Japan, told his people, now is our time. France is weak. The world is, you know, uh, uh, against colonialism. The Japanese are gone. Now is our time. This is the moment I've been waiting for for Mm. 25 years. Now is when we strike. So he's not backing down for anybody. 
And yeah. so the world watched as a European army with its tanks and trucks and heavy weapons, all of which required roads and bridges, fought against a guerrilla army fighting in jungles with no roads. Seven years earlier in 1940, France had been able to control all of Indochina with a few thousand troops. Now, Valois had upward of 100,000. But, as we'll see, it was not nearly enough. And that is where we're going to wrap up 111, Ray. It's getting, it's getting exciting. I know it's war, but it's amazing. The story is absolutely amazing. The tiger and the elephant. All right. Hope you enjoyed that, folks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more of the first Indochina war. Across the continent.